Hi, I'm Trevor Cochran and this is The Garden Gurus Live, a weekly show where I'll share seasonal gardening advice, feature a variety of gardeners from all across Australia and give listeners the opportunity to interact and ask your garden questions. To join the chat live and ask your gardening questions, all you need to do is like our Facebook page and tune in every Friday at 12pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. This program is brought to you by The Garden Gurus and Scott's Performance Naturals. Scott's Performance Naturals is the 100% natural and sustainable way to grow and feed your garden. Backed by years of research and developed by scientists, the technology employed enhances natural processes, allowing extra strong growth. The Performance Naturals range contains organic materials such as Nature-N, blood and bone, seaweed, biostimulants, manure and feather meal to improve the soil, and encourage microbial and earthworm activity. To find out more about the Scott's Performance Naturals range, head to lovethegarden.com.au. Hello and welcome to The Garden Gurus Live. I'm Trevor Cochran. It's great to see you. Happy New Year and well, we've got an exciting year ahead and there's so much going on in and around the garden today. In Michaela's words, our famous producer here, I can't wait to get stuck into the garden with you today. Now, what we've got coming up today is a whole bunch of opportunities. One, some great interviews and also chances for you to ask your gardening questions. Of course, we're at this brand new time, so we'd love you to tell us what you think about it. Um, please, as you're going along, if there's things you like, make sure you hit the like button on your page. Now, we've got five packets of Mr. Fothergill seeds to give away. So remember, leave your question in the comment section. Make sure you include your suburb and state. It really helps when it comes to answering the question, particularly at the moment because we've got such diverse environmental conditions going on all over the country. So it really does help. Um, I will sh share my chat with Greg Neighbour from Love the Garden with you a little bit later on. I had a chat to him earlier on today about orchids and it's a really fascinating uh, sort of discussion. Greg's knowledge in all things horticulture is amazing. So um, you'll get a few take-homes out of that. I've got my mate, Garden Express Managing Director, David Van Berkel joining us and uh, he's going to give us a bit of an update on what they're up to in 2021. And I can't wait to catch up with my good friend, fellow Garden Gurus presenter, Bonnie Marie Hibbs, who's going to join us fresh out of Victoria, probably with a few trains buzzing by her window at the same time as well. Let's see if we can hear them. But first up, let's get into some gardening questions. We've got uh, coming from Brisbane, Sandra. Hello. Hello to everybody in Brisbane. Um, how can I fix my geraniums that have yellow spots on the leaves? It's highly likely your geraniums are getting rust. And it's not an uncommon thing when you've got high humidity and we know we've been getting lots and lots of rainfall up there. Um, it can be caused through nutrition, but more likely this time of year in that environment, it's rust and you need to get a fungicide. Now, there's a few different rust fungicides available and I would check it out with my local garden centre. But I'm, I'm almost 100% certain that's your problem, Sandra. I hope that helps. Dee, we don't know where you're from, Dee but um, I suspect you're probably in a drier climate. Your question is, how do I deal with ants in my garden? And they're mainly in your pot plants. Simple solution in pot plants 
is to make sure that water is penetrating evenly through all the soil. The only reason they're in your pot plants is because you've got big dry pockets in there. Now, that's pretty common this time of the year. And um, the best thing you can do at the moment is to apply a wetting agent. Use a liquid and put it deep so you really soak the pot. And you should get this bubbling up and that's literally the water flowing through the soil and all those air pockets with the air being released as the moisture gets in around the roots. It's so much better for your plants. And because it's a moist environment, the ants will not stay around for very long. I hope that helps. Jane, again, I'm not quite sure where you're from, but I suspect you're probably from somewhere down in Victoria. And in a moment, I might ask David to help me with this particular problem. How do you get rid of cherry slug? Now, um, it's not a pest that we see over here in the West very often. Um, I have seen it treated using copper. Um, but I might ask David a little bit about that one as well. Deborah, again, guys, please tell us where you're from. It does help a lot. She's got, uh, we don't know where you're from, but she's got a tumble compost bin. Should you add any soil to it, it's about half full and you're tumbling each day. Great, that's fantastic. The trick with a good compost is a mixture of dry and green material. So let's say lawn clippings versus dry leaves and trying to keep them at about 50-50 in a compost tumbler. And then if you're tumbling each day, you're going to get very rapid breakdown. In fact, um, the process of breakdown will decrease the overall mass from about 100% of the bin down to probably 40 to even 30% of the bin when it's fully composted. And that process by tumbling, because you're increasing the air in the soil and as such getting the, the microbes acting, um, really occurs quite quickly. Within 28 days, you'll see a beautiful compost come out of that. But don't add soil because soil's already broken down. It's got lots of other things in it and it doesn't need that to be added. Gillian is in Winyard in Tasmania. Can you tell me if there's a weed and feed for lawn for lawns that's not poisonous to poultry? Okay, Gillian, this is a really important lesson and it's one that I cannot stress enough. If you're applying anything, whether it be a chemical to treat insects, um, whether it be fly spray, whether it be a herbicide, if it kills something, it's not good for anything else to come in contact with it. So the answer in short is that you should avoid any animals coming in contact with it. That includes your dog trotting across the lawn, um, definitely not your chooks pecking their way through it. But I will say to you that there is a way to control broadleaf weeds in particular, and that, um, that solution is quite an easy one. What you do with the broadleaf weeds is you apply an iron sulphate solution over the top on a hot, dry day, and those broadleaf weeds, it'll burn all the top off them, and then you just, um, literally all you do is then just mow them um, after that, and it'll take them out. I hope that helps. Prem gave us a comment. Uh, well, thanks for going live on Friday night. It's ideal. That's fantastic. Looking forward to the show. Prem, I hope you enjoy it and thanks so much for your support. Jennifer's in New South Wales. We've really got the questions coming through. This is great. It's great you let us know where you're from. And don't forget, please like us. Keep liking uh, the page and uh, that's really good because it shares it with all of your friends. Jennifer in New South Wales was wondering if I could give you some ideas on how to remove onion weed from your lawn. Uh, now, look, it's quite a difficult one. And the old-fashioned trick, really bizarre, I know this sounds crazy, was that people would put kerosene into a um, roller tray and they would grab the, the, the roller, the paint roller, get it all covered in kerosene and then roll it over the top 
of the lawn. Now, what it would do is it would burn the lawn for a start. So you would get a bit of burn back. It would go kind of white. But the kerosene, the oily substance, goes down the stem of the onion grass and covers around the outside. And it would literally smother the onion weed from your lawn. But to be quite honest, Jennifer, what I would recommend you do is increase your mowing. So if you mow twice a week, particularly if you've got a cylinder mower, so one of those real mowers, um, you are going to cut the top off the onion weed and if you keep doing it, there's no growth so it doesn't have any chance to photosynthesise and the bulbs will eventually sort of shrivel away and the grass will smother it out and that'll get rid of it. Two ways to treat it. My recommendation is you probably go with a mowing option. I don't know that you want to burn your lawn with some, uh, with some caro. Now, Jill's in Victoria. What fertiliser is best for Hoyas? Controlled release fertiliser, Jill. So Hoyas are a slow growing. They will grow in warm weather quite quickly, but they are a slow growing plant as a general comment. You don't want to risk burning that big, thick, succulent foliage. So what you need to do is use a controlled release plant food. Something like Osmocote is always going to be reliable. I hope that helps you, Jill. So where we've been, we've been Tassie, New South Wales, Victoria, and we're over here in Perth, Luba has asked us what's the best mulch for stopping weeds in the garden. Well, all mulch is good. Stone mulches are not good in a hot, dry environment, as a general comment. Um, organic mulches are great. The important thing is the depth of the mulch. And if you've got a lot of weeds coming through, sometimes you can lay newspaper down and then put the mulch on top. The newspaper will break down eventually, but the good thing about the mulch is that it, it does smother those weeds out and helps you get on top of them. Staying in Perth, Patricia, how do you get rid of rats eating your mangoes without killing them? Wow, that's a big one. You really need some of those rat traps where the rat has to go in and get the food source and they can't get out. It's the only way to do it. Rats are a very clever animal and uh, you're right, they love mangoes. So um, you've got to do something about it now because the mangoes in Perth are probably probably two months away from coming through and you don't want to be sharing them. And don't forget again, I'm going to ask you one more time, please make sure you like us um, to show your support. It's very much appreciated. Here's an old friend, Teller, Happy New Year um, from Aberdeen in New South Wales. Why isn't my Loganberry fruiting? Now it's into its second year. It's a very good question. I might ask for a little bit of support from this because um, one of, the, one of the people who knows berries, pretty much all the berries, better than anybody is David Van Berkel, the Managing Director at Garden Express. And David, I managed to catch you midway through a nice red, I believe. Is that true? I'm always in trouble. I live in the <laughs> valley, as you know, Trev, and every hour is one o'clock. So uh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good for the heart, apparently. Um, hey, mate, just quickly on... Uh, on Loganberries, they're a pretty unique fruit, aren't they? And um, they're, they're one that I would struggle to grow in my garden in Perth. We're a bit too warm. Tell us in um, central New South Wales and Aberdeen, uh, why is a Loganberry not fruiting? Look, you're probably not getting the cool, chill nights, Trevor, to, um, to set the fruit. So particularly, you know, if you're west-facing or northwest-facing and getting that hot afternoon sun, uh, but, yeah, most of the berries particularly like to have a cold pocket in the garden uh, or, or a colder part of, of that coastal area. Mm. Okay, it's, it's good advice. I think um, 
you know, when when you live in a, a warmer climate and you want to grow some of those cooler climate plants you, and you're a keen gardener, you tend to do crazy things. So um, I, I have cherry trees in my garden and typically we're not quite cold enough. We don't have enough chill hours, which I think is a similar problem to what you're saying is going on with Loganberry. So to make sure that I get a crop of cherries, and you're going to laugh at this, to make sure I get a good crop of cherries, I make sure at least five or six times during the winter I come out with bags of ice and throw them around the base of the plant because the chill factor is all about chilling down the roots. So by doing that, I can get a lot more hours under 10 degrees, which is how the hours are calculated, and I end up getting pretty good crops. It's sad, I know, but, you know, when you love cherries, it's just what you've got to do, and a few bags of ice isn't such a big deal. Mate, there was, there was a Dutch lady in Darwin growing tulips to pick the flowers for a local florist, and she wow. did exactly the same thing with the ice, so it's not unusual. Um, <laughs> just to get that chill factor in. So anything can be done. And, um, you know, congratulations to giving it a go because you just never know sometimes. And maybe with moving the plant and and trying it in a cooler space in the garden, uh, that fruit might just set. So you do have to give these things a try as a gardener. If you love them and they work, it's, it's a brilliant thing. Yeah, you know what? There's so many examples of people who've been able to do things that, you're just not meant to be able to do by manipulating the environment or finding the perfect location within their garden for that particular plant to be able to survive. So it's great advice, mate. Tell me what's been happening at Garden Express. You guys, you've all been off at Christmas. You've obviously been off checking the wineries out in the Yarra Valley. Another one tomorrow, Trev. I've got a degustation going on. So (laughs) it's going to be a theme, I think, coming up. Uh, We did, we had a a lovely break. Geez, last year was was enormous for us. we, we learned a lot of lessons out of uh, out of the COVID experience. Uh, more recently, you know, that's that's come to fruition again. Uh, but it will change the, the way we do business a little bit. Um, a lot of big companies are, are stopping their catalogs, and we're probably going to go to a smaller catalog more regularly, mm-hmm. available for customers. Of course, a lot of e-catalogs this year, uh, and just that information flow of what's available this week or this month for you to purchase and have delivered uh, a lot quicker without waiting for that build of a catalogue, which takes, you know, an enormous amount of time and, and energy. Yeah, um, and effort, right? Yeah, exactly, you know, and, and we love doing it and it's and it's great. And, in fact, we're still doing it, but to present it more online on, on a regular basis. I, I know uh, that um, traditionally when, when we could and uh, in some places you can now, in some places you can't, but... Uh, most of my friends, their their shopping routine with regards to going to a garden centre would be every couple of weeks. So if you had a catalogue every couple of weeks or every month, um, it's a chance to pick up the latest and greatest in season, isn't it? it it's that in season thing that we want to hit, you know. And so a catalogue every 10 weeks means that we've got some plants that are ready that we might have to hold back. We've got some plants that may not be quite ready. Uh, and so, you know, it's a more regular feed of, of the most exciting things. So, you know, we were really wrapped actually through the COVID experience to be able to give our gardeners, um, you know, this freshness, uh, this, this fresh approach, um, more consistency. So we're looking forward to that this year. I think it's just going to be another huge year for gardeners uh, and, and for people in the garden industry. And we're really looking forward to it. 
Yeah, well, look, we're, we're all spending so much more time in the garden. I mean, obviously, a lot of us need to stay around home um, and, and certainly it's in this world we live in at the moment, it's a safer place to be. So why not get your garden into shape? And the good thing about Garden Express is you've pretty much got everything available. So, you know, whether somebody wants some really good quality garden tools or maybe a great pair of secateurs or the latest in-season plant, and I know that right behind you, you've got a fantastic example of uh, some oriental liliums by the looks it's a beautiful white one beautiful and white one and on the back side of the arrangement are some uh, some beautiful double whites that we had a couple of years ago and unfortunately there there's not as many of them around at the moment but i can i can smell it coming over my shoulder it's delicious yeah. I was about to say, I've actually got some that I got off you last year that have took a long, long time to actually grow in the spring. We were a lot cooler in Perth up until about three or four weeks ago. And um, so all my, my lilium bulbs are actually really late. And uh, I'm just getting, they just opened up and flowered. And the highlight for me is the fragrance. Yes, oh, oriental lilies are amazing. But if I can throw a comment in there about most flower bulbs in that first year when you plant them, uh, they do take a little bit to resettle, I suppose. And uh, whilst you can lift and, and, and replant quite regularly, a bulb coming from Victoria, for example, over to your warmer climate and different soils, it just can take a little bit longer for them to settle in. But um, yep. usually that second and third year of, uh, of flowering experience, uh, yeah, they, they just yep. improve with age. And I think we see that with most plants as well. You know, I was talking about cherries before and, you know, the first maybe two years as my, my cherry trees were establishing at home um, that, you know, I didn't, I didn't get a lot of flower in the, in the winter and I, or in the spring and I didn't get a, a huge amount of growth. But the third year they hit their straps. They'd got their root system down. They really took off. And in, in the next three years to year five, they, they grew massively. And then in year five, they were getting pretty close to their mature size. And that's when we started getting great crops of cherries. And I think it's that the lesson there is about giving them a couple of years to settle in, then letting hit the straps. Then once they get some maturity, they start delivering. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think that's true of, you know, lots of different plants in your garden. And, um, you know, you've had the the beautiful experience of, uh, of creating a garden from scratch and you know, I've got some of the most wonderful silver birches this year uh, that are probably in that fifth year and, and they're just glorious. And, and it's just so rewarding, isn't it, to um, to mm. see your garden blossom in, in so many different ways. So, yep. You just, you just reminded me, I need to get hold of some silver birches, Dave. Can I get those organised and delivered out to me? Absolutely. Absolutely. We can, <laughs> uh, you know, either in pots or the dormant season's not too far away. Mate, this is this is the problem with chatting with you. I end up spending a fortune. <laughs> it's, a thing. it's a good thing. Happy, happy. Another winery tomorrow, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's happy days for me too, mate. There's nothing more rewarding than a beautiful garden, and that's what you guys deliver. Tell me, what can we expect in 2021 from Garden Express? What have you got coming up? Look, I suppose uh, first and foremost, we're harvesting our spring flowering bulbs. So we start that harvest process. Um, the earliest ones are late November. And there's a big curing process that goes on for about four to six weeks. Uh, and, and we'll be pulling some bulbs out of the ground till the end of this month. So spring flowering bulbs, uh, massive season coming up. Uh, looking forward to hopefully a Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show. But for us, that means an online Flower Fest again this year. So oh, that's great. Big preparations happening for that one. 
So it means that um, all over Australia, people don't have to miss out. They can actually uh, enjoy the the spectacle by by picking up some plants and taking them home. Uh, just it don't was so day. much more fun, Trevor. Than like I, I love the flower show. I love that uh, that presence of being in front of the customer. Uh, yep. But to be able to deliver to so many more customers who don't have that opportunity of of a great garden show, and there's a few less of them around, I think, across the country. So yep. um, we really enjoyed the flower fest experience and. Um, uh, I know Rowan, he's, uh, he's already preparing for that again this year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, mate, listen, I, I tell you what, I am looking forward to, I'm hoping that uh, Mifkus gets up this year and we all get across, but I am looking forward to actually getting online and enjoying the, uh, the, the version that uh, allows me to order and get them delivered direct to my doorstep, which is what you guys do so well. David, thanks for joining us. I'm looking forward to working with you again this year, mate. We've, we've had so much fun in 2020 despite all the challenges. We all managed to come through it and, of course, we made so many people happy with beautiful gardens and most of that's thanks to your great work. No, thank you and, and likewise, Trevor. It's just, it's just going to be one of the best years, I think. 2021, looking forward to it. Yep, all the hard work we did in 2020, it's, going to, it's springing up in our gardens. It's just going to get better and better, mate. Thanks. Have a great night. Have a glass of red for me too, will you? Will do, Trevor. See you later. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Visit the Garden Guru's online store and browse through a collection of high-quality, German-made wolf garden tools. You'll also find a range of books with information to help create and maintain a beautiful garden. You can also access the online store on the Garden Guru's Facebook page. Use the code GURUS for free shipping on orders over $30. Offer ends 31st of October. Right, shall we keep moving along? I'm really excited. A bit further down the line, not too far, we're going to have Bonnie Marie Hibbs joining us. But right now, I'll answer your questions. Leslie, again, Leslie, I'm not sure where you are, but... I'm hoping you're probably in WA, not necessarily, but the, what is the best product to add to sandy soil to help with water? Well, there's no doubt right at the moment that probably the preeminent product to improve um, water uh, absorbency and, and keeping the water near the surface of the soil where the feeder roots and the drinking roots are of your plants is a, a product called Soil Solver. Now, it's a clay... Um, it's a combination of rock minerals, clay and silt is the best way I can put it. It's a unique mix. And when you incorporate it into the topsoil of your garden beds, you end up with these amazing results. And um, that's what it's all about. So Soil Solver is the solution for you, Leslie. I hope that helps. If you are in another state, you can still get that product from leading garden centres like, um, like Garden World in Victoria and uh, Flower Power in New South Wales as an example. And I think it's also available in SA quite quite widely. We're heading up to Queensland to Toowoomba. Hello, Donna. How are you? Your new growth on your cycad is going brown on the tips. Why is this happening? Well, it can be two things. So the first one is that it can just be environmental extreme. So if it's if the soil's dried out, if it's um, windy, excessively windy and dry, that can cause that browning. But it's more likely because you guys have been getting a lot of rain that it's occurring because you have a lack of trace elements in your soil. Now, um, cycads do suffer quite badly from this frizzy disease, which is caused as a consequence of a lack of several key trace elements. So a good all-round trace element mix added into the soil in and around the plant and don't be scared to be quite generous with it. You're not going to burn the roots by adding it in but you are going to rapidly um, solve that problem. So very important. 
I uh, hope that helps, Donna. Now, we're heading to New South Wales. Cranebrook, Marilyn, hello. Why are your cucumber leaves going yellow? Could be one of several reasons. One of them is you could have powdery mildew affecting them. It would be obvious because there'd be some white patches going through it as well. The other thing could be that you also have some kind of pythium or collar rot in around the base of the plant. Now, if that's going on, um, that's pretty much the end of the cucumbers. And the last thing is sometimes you can get something called cucumber mosaic virus, which is spread by aphids moving around um, the garden. And uh, if that's the case, you're gonna kind of get this mottling um, running through the leaves. It's difficult to describe. But it's probably not a good sign. The, the only other thing, if you were in Western Australia, I'd be saying it's a lack of water. But I suspect uh, where you are that uh, that's not an issue. So I hope one of those answers is the one that matches what it is for you. If it's the first three, uh, probably not good news. They may need to come out of the ground. Let's go to Victoria. Jola. Hello, Jola. Uh, my gladiolas are browning before they fully bloom. Can you please help? Yes, I can because I have the same problem and I have just gone around and treated it in my garden yesterday. In fact, last night I did it. Um, this is caused by thrips and the thrips are getting in the flowers when they're in the bud form before they even get a chance to open. And it's a significant problem because they basically scrape the, the tissue of the flower and uh, when they're doing that, they're doing it to get sap to come out, which they feed off. But the downside, of course, is that it causes all this scarring, which is the browning that you're seeing. So this is quite common, particularly if they're in dry conditions or humid conditions. And what you need to do is you need to go online to the Good Bug site and you can order these beneficial insects that will come in. They're a predatory mite and they will eat. And there's also a pirate bug, a pirate beetle or bug that um, is also sold. Either one of them um, will help you solve this particular problem because you do have to solve it because those same thrips are quite happy to move from your gladdies to your petunias to your roses and everything else in the garden. So you do want to get on top of it now. I hope that helps. James is in Mahogany Creek in Mundaring. That's in WA. He's been wanting to plant some zinnia seeds this summer, but you can't see them in Bunnings or anywhere. Now, I remember, he said, I remember that they used to have a lime green variety, but now I can't find that either. Do you know where they're stocked? No, but look, check out one of the specialist seed companies. There's a few of them online, Eden Seeds, a few of those. They have some of those heirloom varieties. Um, just one second, can you grab me power for my... Um, yeah. yeah, I'm at 5%. I don't want to disappear at the last minute. Um, now, uh, that's the solution is to jump online, look for those heirloom varieties. Really does make a big difference. Um, I hope that helps. I think that's probably the best solution for you, uh, James. Now, Pratik is in West Melbourne. My tomato plants were growing well. Recently, the leaves have started to turn brown. They're drying out. And I don't think I'm overwatering. and I give them power feed. Now, you know what is causing that? It is something called russet mite. And uh, just making sure that I don't disappear on you. Um, russet mite is a, is a very common problem this time of the year and it'll cause that browning effect. The leaves get kind of thinner as well. They don't quite grow as big and broad. And you'll find that the flowers will not set fruit because they're also being damaged by this mite. This is another case of you getting a... Um, uh, getting a predatory insect and uh, again it's it's the good bug 
website, you can get sprays, okay? So um, if you really want an instant effect with sprays, spray them. Do not use Comfortor. The experts in the field tell me that Comfortor, two years down the line, is still residual and at half rate. So you do not want to be using that one. Um, it's becoming less and less common. Uh, guys at Bunnings banned it some period of time ago. But the last thing you want to do is go getting um, this residual nature of this chemical left in your garden uh, because it, it, what it does is it basically kills off the beneficials um, and the predator or the, the sorry the beneficials and the mite that's causing the problem um, builds up a resistance to it, which is not good. So I hope that helps. Um, okay, let's just keep moving along. Francis from Kurumbara. Sorry, I've not heard of this place before. Kurumbara, Victoria. Uh, why my radicchio never? Why do they never colour? Now, they're always green and you want them red. On the pack, it shows them red, but whilst it's growing, it's green. It's too light. It's as simple as that. If you can shade them just a bit, you'll get that red coming through. But, our, you know, if you're in Europe, the summers are not quite as bright um, and we don't get as long or you don't get as long a day. So if you want to get more red in them, bring some more shade in and you'll find that that'll bring a little bit more colour into them. Uh, that's the simple solution, Francis. It's just the amount of light they're getting. Tell us back from Aberdeen in New South Wales, how do you stop cooch grass from seeding so often? There is no easy solution with cooch grass. Some of those, um, some of those really basic um, species of cooch grass do produce a lot of seed. And the trick with it is to actually just keep mowing it. If you keep mowing it on a regular basis, it makes a big deal. In fact, it's a really good question, Teller, uh, giving us the opportunity to lead into another segment, if you like, and it's my plant of the week. And I'm um, gonna ask Bonnie about this in a, in a minute as we join her, but my plant of the week this week, and it's only because of the significant number of people that are contacting us and, and me personally asking questions about their lawns. They've got all sorts of problems starting to appear. Patches, there's questions, are they being attacked by beetles? Um, you know, it seems to be the verge is drying out really quickly. Uh, you know, am I giving my lawn enough? And this is a pretty common thing. And the, the variance um, in this is probably lawns in places where you're getting more rain and lawns where you're not getting any rain at all, like Perth at the moment. We haven't had rain for a long period of time. Now... That's a good question. I'm going to ask Bonnie. Hello, Bonnie. How are you? It's great to see you. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. It's lovely to see you. Happy New Year. Now, tell me about lawns in Victoria at the moment. Are you getting some patches in them over there? Um, yeah, I've definitely got some brown patches and I've got my um, sort of winter grass has definitely died off by now. So it doesn't look nice and even and it's growing really, really quick as well. So um, it's been a lot of work to maintain it, <laughs> to keep it looking nice. Have you had a fair bit of rain um, this summer in Melbourne? We've had a very wet summer. Um, just up until today, we've had extremely hot weather too. We had temperatures of high 30s. Um, but today, um, we've had huge um, thunderstorms with hail. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been very all over the place and the temperatures have been all over the place. But Probably the last week has been hot, so, but, um, but yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, it's really quite an interesting challenge because when you've got high humidity like you're experiencing, um, mm. high humidity 
creates other problems. So you can end up with fungal diseases. You also get the yeah. proliferation of some of those bugs like um, African black beetle and cutworm and things like that that can do a lot of damage. Is that an issue for you there? Yeah, we do see evidence of them more so than what we have in the past. And I think Mel well, Melbourne is becoming a little bit more humid over the months and um, you are definitely seeing things that we haven't had before. So, yeah, definitely, definitely so. Um, but there's a lot of fungal issues starting to become present now in the garden too. Um, so there's a lot of sooty mould starting to emerge as well and there's just things happening, unfortunately, due to the weather. But yeah. yeah. Well, these are the challenges that we have. And, and I mean, mm. my point about the difference between where you are in the country is mm. such that when you've got high humidity um, and a lot of activity, cutworm, uh, which is mm. more of a tropical kind of an insect, I suppose a warmer mm. climate insect, yeah. um, really does start to cause problems. And in lawns, it goes through and it cuts the, the roots, the roots underneath the, the foliage. So you end up with these sort of dead dry patches, right? Yeah. So that's a, that's a fairly common thing. And, and the treatment for that, um, well, what would you recommend for, for Melbourne? Um, usually, I, I don't, I'm not a fan of chemical, um, but there are chemical soil drenches that you can do. Um, but I find aerating the soil as best you can and trying to, you know, keep this lawn really well fed and really well mowed. I find that usually prevents a lot of those issues to be from beginning with. Um, yeah. but there are, but there are soil drenches that you can do, but it's just a matter yeah. of you wanting them or not. I know, um, I know that green keepers will often use um, what is sold commonly as bathroid. They'll use the active ingredient yeah. for that. And mm -hmm. um, it's very, very effective against those lawn grubs quite broadly. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll literally, it's, as you said, it's a drench. They'll literally spray it over the top and wash it in. And mm -hmm. that generally cleans it out. Now, the downside to that is, of course, um, when these bugs come to the surface uh, and they're dying, and that's what happens, birds will often come in and, and if you've ever watched magpies walk around the lawn they do this amazing thing they tap the top of the lawn if you watch what they're doing when they're feeding and they walk around and what they're doing is they're mimicking rainfall falling on the top of the lawn and it's encouraging those those bugs and wor those insects and worms to come to the surface so that mm -hmm. they can actually feed on them but when they're full of a chemical the last thing we want to do is have um, those kinds of birds eating it. It's not good for them. It's, I, I think as a general comment, these are pretty soft chemicals, but it's still yeah. a chemical. So it's going to be ingested and it can't be good yeah. for them. So if you yeah. love your, if you love your, uh, you know, your magpies and, and uh, butcher birds and all those others that hop around the garden eating those bugs, um, I agree with you. I think we should avoid them. But if you've got a plague and you really need to treat it because your lawn's about to be decimated, then um, probably something like bathroid is a good solution, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's all a matter of practice as well. If you're doing it by the label of how they explain to do it and you're, you're being wise with your chemical products, then you're going to do very minimal damage to any wildlife. But yeah. yeah. This is um, this is one of the things I'm sure you emphasise it a lot in the garden centre, but um, so, so you know the difference between men and women, right? <laughs> yeah. As a general comment. I don't know. This is a dangerous question, so I don't know. <laughs> Not sure, not sure where I'm going at the moment, are you? No, no. You've got a big smile on your face, so that's good. It only means that we're thinking the same way, Bonnie, because what I was going to say is men don't read labels, but women do read them, right? Okay. And, and, and when it comes to chemicals, that wasn't what you were thinking? 
not know what, where you're going. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't what Michaela was thinking either, so I'm not sure where you go. That may be another difference between men and women. Um, no. But the, the point that I was going to make was that um, when, when we apply chemicals, blokes kind of look at the bottle and they take the cap off and they go, oh, that should do. Yeah. Um, I might put just a little bit more in. Sorry for all you guys out there that actually, uh, actually do read the label, but this is a fairly common problem. And, and what happens is you actually create a toxicity if you're applying that chemical at a far greater rate that's, than is what recommend, is recommended, whereas ladies tend to be a lot more, um, a lot more careful with that and they do tend to read the label quite carefully. So um, the important message here is don't use chemicals at greater rates than what are recommended and, and be very yeah. careful um, how you do it if you, if you do need to do it. Mm. Bit of a bit of a uh, setup, I think, Bonnie. I might have uh, might have given you a hard time. I thought it's seven o'clock or just uh, seven thirty-five in Melbourne that you'd be on top of this, but oh clearly, clearly, I've got you again. You know, <laughs> there was that situation. You know, we all used to love travelling so much too, right? You know, yeah. like in what two thousand and nineteen, um, mm -hmm. particularly Michaela here and I, we spent so much time overseas. We went to some of the most amazing places, and one of the things I love about travel is all the things you learn, like things that you just didn't know. Like yeah. we, we, went to the, um, we went to the Canary Islands and uh, one of the things I learned about the Canary Islands is there's no canaries there. It's, it's, like, the oh, Virgin, really? yeah, it's like the Virgin Islands. Um, went there and uh, there's no canaries there either, Bonnie. Um, so, uh, yeah. things you learn, hey? Yeah, definitely. I'm very touche. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, tell me, what is the gardening scene in 2021 going to look like in Melbourne? Um, I think it's going to be quite exciting. There's a lot of new or first-time gardeners and that's been really exciting in the nursery. And then on a personal level, just getting out and probably doing more. I, f I feel like with the lockdowns that we had in Melbourne, it made, like even though I appreciate the outdoors, it makes you appreciate it even more and wants you to nurture it a bit more as well um, yep. from my perspective anyway but um yeah I think the the new new garden gardeners and the new experience and hopefully the, a lot of new plant releases are coming so that's going to be really exciting as well to see how they perform and the flowers and things like that but um yeah I think I think it's just going to be a really exciting year and I think it's going to be positive and hopefully COVID can get under control and if not we are better prepared anyway for it yeah. this year Look, I think the federal government in the COVID area has done a great job and, and obviously mm -hmm. trying to get um, vaccine in. And But I yeah. do think that the reality is that probably most of 2021, we're going to sp be spending a lot more time at home. Um, yeah. The nature of this virus is such that, um, you know, being home and spending time in the garden is going to be good for yeah. you. It does keep you out of the main circulation. So your risks mm -hmm. of being exposed are reduced. And until such yeah. a time that we all have the vaccine, what better place to spend some time than in the garden? You know, um, I, I was kind of thinking about um, what I'm going to do in the garden this weekend, tomorrow, uh, and things that I've got planned. And because of the extreme heat that we're continually experiencing here in Perth, I'm only spending a couple of hours maximum in the morning and uh, mm -hmm. maybe in the evening a little bit of time. But um, the conditions, they've been a little bit milder in Melbourne. Um, what are you going to do in the garden this weekend? Um, so I'm going to mulch because um, I find I use sugarcane mulch. It's one of my favourite 
mulches to use. And um, I always find every sort of six, maybe every three to six months, it needs a new application. Yeah. So some of my garden beds are calling for some more mulch, especially with the hot weather we've had. So that will help with retaining the water and keeping the plants happy. But I was um, really excited because I want to I want to go visit a nursery and try and buy more plants. <laughs> yeah. I, I, every few weeks I like to go find a nursery and shop at them and, you know, support them and find things for the garden. But I'll probably be either mulching, shopping for plants or in my veggie garden. So. <laughs> Way to go, way to go. And um, we're not that far away from the next series of The Garden Guru. So yeah. we're, uh, we're already talking, aren't we, about all the stories mm-hmm. we're going to do, some of the things. Um, really looking forward to I'm hoping that, you know, borders remain open and yeah. everything's all good and we don't have any any restrictions on what we're able to do. So we can see more mm-hmm. of you this autumn. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be really exciting. Yeah. It's yeah. last year was it was good though and I like I said to you last time, I really appreciate that you let me continue on in my in my own little way. But um I'm really looking forward to having a crew again and just getting back into it again. It would be really good fun. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well look, you know, Victoria is such a beautiful place and you know, mm. it was never uh, nicknamed the Garden State for no reason. It's <laughs> Of the most yeah. beautiful gardens. I know yours is just getting better and better as you're developing it up. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of that this yeah. autumn. Bonnie, mm-hmm. thanks for joining us. Have a lovely weekend. I hope you really enjoy yourself and, and thanks for staying staying home and enjoying it with us tonight. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right, mate. Take care. See ya. We'll see you later. Garden Express are Australia's leading mail-order gardening service, offering a wide range of quality garden products. Each week on the Garden Gurus Live, the team at Garden Express will share a weekly offer. So make sure after today's show, you jump online and visit their website. Bonnie Marie Hibbs, how good is she? All right, look, I, I promise you I'll answer as many questions as I can and we'll keep flowing because they're going through. Now remember, please like us, like the page. It helps spread the word about the good work we're trying to do. And I think uh, we've got um, a good 75, 80 people joining us at the moment, but we'd love to see more. Christine's from uh, Stirling in WA, which is a suburb in Perth. And she's got a native frangipani and it's not happy. It looks as if it doesn't get watered enough and it's showing signs of nutrient deficiency. And they do show signs like that. Now this is a, a native as such. She's been watering it every day and she's been giving it trace elements or she did about four weeks ago and she's at a loss of what to do next. Right, here's my advice. Um, I literally struggle to kill mine in the garden. They, um, they love the soil and the reason my soil is so good is I've been using Troforte. So I've built up lots and lots of minerals. It's a very, very um, complex soil structure when it comes to nutrients. And I have been making sure that um, it's lovely and mulched. And I reckon that they're the two most important things when it comes to uh, native frangipanis is keeping consistent soil moisture levels right and also making sure that you're keeping the fertiliser up. So when I apply my um, Troforte, I'm putting it in every three to four months and uh, it's just giving optimal nutrient supply to this plant. And and my fr- native frangipani has just gone ballistic and the foliage is a deep dark green and it's producing great flowers. So I reckon that's the key for you, Christine. And Sterling is known to have some pretty sandy soils. Uh, mulch, retain the moisture, get the nutrients in in a controlled release fertiliser, 
and I think you'll get some great results. A couple of handfuls around the base right now will do the world of good. Deborah is in Craigieburn in Victoria. Hello, Deborah. You've got an olive tree for Christmas. Now, that's a great present. Um, you've heard that they like to be planted in pairs. Is it true? Do they need to be side by side? Or can they just be in the same garden bed? Well, olive trees get pretty big. The first thing you need to know is that they get very big. They're a tree, so they don't need to have another plant around the outside and they'll produce fruit. Interestingly enough, they're one of those plants, I sort of think of them as a Mediterranean plant, but they do require a chill factor to really get good crops. So they do need to get a bit of a cold winter and in Craigieburn you'll get that. Um, so you could do a single plant. If I was you, I'd just do a single plant. Uh, unless you want to do, um, you know, an oil olive and maybe a, a pickling olive, a, a fruit um, that you can actually do something with as well. It's completely up to you. You have a think about it, but you don't need to plant in pairs. You can plant one. Kate, uh, Kate is in Bell in Queensland. Just wondering why your ferns are browning off on the leaves, even though they've... Even though they've got lots of new fronds, that's an interesting question. And this has been happening all year round. Is it a lack of humidity? And that's a good question. Depends uh, what the humidity levels are like. I would, um, I would suggest that it would be a good idea for you just at the moment, Kate, to be looking at improving the soil, um, uh, the, the micronutrition, so the, the trace elements um, is probably one of the things that does make a big difference with ferns because that browning could literally be a sign that they're lacking a couple of those key essential trace elements that you need. And, um, and humidity is the other thing, is that if you're getting dry, windy conditions, that could be causing the browning off as well. Make sure they're protected from wind. Keep the humidity up. Mulching is always a great idea around ferns and keep the fertiliser up. Chris is on the central coast in New South Wales, so we really are all over the country. Uh, what is the best placement and suggestions to assist for a native hibiscus? You've got acidic clay soil, uh, which you've improved with compost, which is fantastic. It's the best way to do it. That'll ameliorate the, the soil so you get the air into it and, and uh, makes it sort of rich and healthy. Um, but they haven't been grown. So you find the native hibiscus hasn't taken off even though you've had excellent rain. So just if your soil's really heavy and it becomes waterlogged, that'll stop them from doing it. And if you're going to plant them in heavier soils, what you want to do is actually mound up the soil. So you create a round mound like this and you plant the hibiscus in the top. And uh, that'll help it sort of get established a little bit easier. It's, it's a bit of a different thing. If you're in sandy soils, you'd actually create a bit of a furrow and you plant the plant in the middle at the lowest point of the furrow and then water all goes to it. So it's all about moisture and hibiscus, whilst they don't like it too dry, they certainly prefer it on the drier side than the wet side. So I suspect that maybe the rain's causing the problem. Prem, I'm not sure where you're from, Prem, but you need to um, let us know. So it'll help uh, when I answer your questions, albeit this one is not too difficult because you've asked how to propagate um, saw or Vietnamese coriander and um, the, that, it, so just to clarify what that is, it's um, a saw leaf, it's got like a sawtooth leaf structure. Um, it's not coriander like you would all know coriander. So the coriander that we would normally find used in Thai food or, or Chinese or Asian cooking um, that coriander will go to seed very quickly in hot conditions. A lot of people think it's tropical. It's not. It's a cool climate plant. But the sawtooth or the Vietnamese coriander 
is a um, perennial broadleaf uh, plant that is not a traditional coriander, um, but it's got a beautiful coriander flavour through the foliage. To grow it, you can grow it from seed. You can get it from your collection from your local garden centre. And what I mean by that is um, people like um, Renaissance Herbs, they have it in their range and it's worthwhile getting your hands on that. And the last thing is if you've got a friend who's got it, it grows in clumps so you can actually dig it up and split it and put it into the garden in different spaces. Well, how good's that? Now, earlier on today, I caught up with Greg Neighbor. I alluded to it in the, in the intro to the show. Um, Greg is a scientist. He's one of the most fascinating minds when it comes to horticulture. He works with growers to produce better crops, but he also helps the, the um, evergreen family of products, which is Osmocote and Lawn Builder and, and uh, all those wonderful products that are put out by the guys from Love the Garden to make sure that the, the benefits a commercial grower gets is converted into retail packaging that allows you to pick it up at your local bunning store and to get the best results yourself at home. And so I caught up with Greg and the, the whole point of it today was one of the biggest questions we're getting asked at the moment is, what do I do with my orchids now they've finished flowering? So here's what he had to say. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining us, Greg. How are you going? How's everything going in New South Wales at the moment? Oh, well, spattering of, uh, of issues here and there, as you'll be aware. But, um, you know, generally weather's been good since, uh, since Christmas. We've had a lot of uh, rain over Christmas, New Year, and it's not too bad at the moment, warming up. Although, now tell me, uh, with, with you, the rain, how's that affecting gardens over there? Oh, they're booming. It's um, <laughs> yes, uh, herbicides are uh, are in in high demand, <laughs> and uh, lawn mowers aren't keeping up with uh, with what's happening in the in the on the lawn. And uh, yeah, it's um, booming. It's always times like this that it reminds me of just how big Australia is, because of course. In the West at the moment, we've just been through probably one of the longest heat waves that I can kind of recall, you know, 35 pretty much every day for probably three weeks of quite a few 40s. And, and now we're experiencing um, extreme winds. So in Perth anyway, um, very, very strong winds blowing down out of the hills. It's all that hot air coming off the desert. These are, these are really unique challenges um, right across the country. But of course, all over Australia, we tend to grow, you know, the same kind of plants. For example, orchids are one that I'm getting so many questions from. A lot of people got uh, an orchid as a gift prior to Christmas, and uh, there are a lot of people who are also splitting them and starting to pot them in anticipation of uh, of the cymbidiums coming into flower in May and, and June and, and, and July. Tell me, have you got any tips with regards to getting the best results from orchids? Well, orchids are an interesting group. I mean, there's, there's about 23,000 species of orchid, um, and it's probably the, uh, the one group of plants that has the broadest range of environments that it's, uh, it's indigenous to. So, uh, you know, from, from, from the Arctic Circle to, to desert to deep uh, rainforest, a lot, of, a lot of people kind of look at orchids and their, and their, their wonderful flower and the delicacy of them and, and feel as though they're... Um, you know, something that's, that's coming only from tropical or subtropical areas. But yep. that broad range means that selection of the orchid that you're wanting to grow or can grow 
uh, is something you need to um, to you know really consider, have a look at at um, the history and where it's it's native to, yep. what the climate of that uh, that native area where it evolved is. It's such uh, an and important that point, you. right? Because you know, the, some of the most beautiful orchids that I've ever seen are the terrestrial orchids you'll see here in Western Australia. And, you know, growing up in, say, the Kalbarri National Park area, are just some spectacular spider orchids. But the, the conditions are so harsh, they've actually adapted to that environment. But the, the average orchid that probably the, the most people would have in their backyard, there's probably three different types, isn't there? There's the dendrobium, which of course, there's the King Yarnum species, which is a, you know, Queensland, Northern New South Wales native species. There's obviously the Cymbidiums, which are probably the most popular, I think, maybe, next to the moth orchids, which, you know, they've been, the Phalaenopsis orchids have been incredibly popular in recent years. So pretty much I reckon everybody in the country's got one of those growing either yeah. in their backyard or in their house. And that's something that you guys cater for exceptionally well, isn't it? Well, you know, because of the range, we've got um, a couple of different growing medias we've formulated, which one is coarse, and the coarse uh, is large, chunky bark, et cetera. And that's designed specifically for, for your epiphytes. So those orchids that are naturally growing in trees or rock faces or, you know, not in the ground as such. Um, and there's a lot of terrestrials, as you, as you uh, mentioned already, that, um, that need not to have that sort of open-aired mix, but something more akin to soil. So we have the second uh, potting mix that we, uh, we have, which is our Orchid General. And Orchid General is, uh, utilises some finer materials, so it's more earthy-like, let's say, for terrestrials, but also grows quite well uh, the majority of epiphytes. So, um, I've got baskets of um, Stephanota of Stanhopia here yep. um, and they've just finished flowering uh, and that's using, even though they're a terrestrial, uh, even though they're an epiphyte, um, you know, use the general purpose potting mix on that one. And it still works really well for them. It does, yeah, very yeah. well. I've actually had four flower spikes off one basket. Wow, that's amazing. So so just, just to clarify that, so... If, if uh, we're talking about, say, cymbidiums, I'm used to a very chunky bark mix for cymbidiums. Um, would that be the, the, the more coarse form that you'd recommend for them? Well, actually, um, uh, having done a lot in commercial production of cymbidium, most commercial production of cymbidium uses a much more uh, general terrestrial style mix. Right. They, gen they grow uh, naturally in uh, terrestrial environment underneath trees in, in the um, Tibetan, southern Tibetan and, and uh, east uh, western Chinese area. Yep. Uh, and they grow in leaf litter, etc., but in ground. So okay. commercial production uh, uses more of the general orchid mix as opposed to the epiphyte mix. Okay. And then things like dendrobiums, the, the cane dendrobiums in particular, which seem to be really popular now, what's the best mix for them? Well, again, they're um, predominantly uh, epiphytes, so the coarse mix would be preferred for them. Okay. You know, and sometimes if you're thinking that w w what you generally would do is have a look at the root system, and if the root system is a very thick, you know, uh, very thick uh, tendril, then it's generally likely to be an epiphyte, whereas yep. a finer root system, it'll generally be 
either um, a terrestrial fully or a semi-terrestrial. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, let's move on from the potting mixes a little bit because right now probably the single biggest question we're getting asked is about care and stimulating flower. And, you know, all three groups that I've just kind of talked about as being the most common probably uh, that you'd find in a garden centre um, need to be cared for a little bit differently to each other, don't they? Um, yes, but the, the care, um, you know, we, we have a pour and feed and, and specific osmocote and other fertilisers for orchid, um, and they're generally formulated on the basis that orchid needs a reasonably high calcium level. When you have pseudobulbs or, a, you know, a, a bulb kind of structure or pseudobulb as it's known yep. then or a corm, you, you need higher levels of calcium to keep the integrity of that yep. so it doesn't tend to break down as, as, as they can if they're overwatered, et cetera. So that's kind of a major one, as well as keeping pretty, nitrogen pretty, levels moderate. Pretty important for, um, pretty important, sorry for interrupting, pretty important for cymbidiums that, that you know, they're, it's very evident with them, those pseudobulbs, isn't it? Correct. So you need to, to have the um, calcium levels and therefore magnesium levels reasonably well uh, managed so as to keep the integrity of those bulbs and therefore their flowering capability. Okay. But, you know, predominantly the flowering capability is about um, the seasonality. Symbidiums are initiating their flowers a good four months before they're, they're actually flowering. Mm -hmm. So flowering isn't about the time they flower. Flowering is about probably six months before they flower. Are they getting the right light? Are they getting the right night temperatures? Uh, and this is the thing about Phalaenopsis in the house. A lot of Phalaenopsis, of course, end up on the kitchen sink or, you know, a kitchen windowsill, whatever. Yep. Um, and that isn't entirely inducive to flowering of Phalaenopsis. You'll buy them in flower. The flower will finish. If you cut it off uh, at the, above the second node um, fairly quickly after that process, it potentially will reflower off that original flower stem mm -hmm. so you can get a second flowering off it. Yep. But then as it gets older, it needs to be put outside like, um, you know, put outside at night so it gets a cool night. Okay. So the cooler conditions are also pretty important. I, I, I was always under the impression with, um, so the way I treat my cymbidiums at home is I basically give them more light as of about sort of late February uh, so I try and get them actually out into the open, out of a shady position. And that seems to be the trigger. Uh, obviously, at the same time, if, I, if I've if i given them a, a feed um, and then put them into that position, it seems to be the trigger for the flowering. I, I get a good flush of growth. And then um, within probably four weeks, the flower, the flower stems or stalks are actually evident. I can see them coming through. Absolutely. And so it's that sort of knowledge in regard to individual genus and species that um, that helps you to uh, to get the results that you need. So you're absolutely right. The uh, light conditions for cymbidium, if you look at where, they, where, they, where they're indigenous to, endogenous to, the, uh, the, the plant itself is in a deciduous forest. And so at a certain time, there's a lot more light yep. through winter than there is and then potentially shade. So as it's coming to, to, to winter, a lot more light. Oh, it's, it's really interesting. There's such an interesting family of plants. And of course, they're the biggest plant family there is on the planet as well. It's something that most people don't realise. They think of them as being um, 
very sensitive, you know, you touchy sort of plants, but they are quite a remarkably hardy plant. So important thing is um, feeding and, and now's a good time to be repotting a lot of these plants. So the potting mix advice was, was brilliant. And, and then giving them the feed to, to encourage the growth and the re-establishment and obviously the production of flowers as we move into, uh, into cooler conditions. Yeah, um, and to stop that feeding uh, three months before flowering, you don't want to, uh, yep. to feed too close to flowering. It'll encourage foliage and not flower. Yep. Um, and, you know, as far as the group's concerned, um, of course, um, our vanilla pods come from an orchid plant. Right. So they're... Uh, an economic uh, crop as well. Yeah, I'm actually trying to grow some uh, vanilla orchids at the moment at home, and it's it's quite the challenge. They they really are a, a you know they're a beautiful climbing orchid, which is one of the things that most people don't realise. It's it's a climber that ends up into the foliage of trees and all sorts of stuff if you can get them taking off and growing. But uh, they yep. do seem to love that warmer, more consistent, humid environment than the the dry environment that I live in. I'm, I'm with you, Trevor. I've tried three times to grow a, a vanilla in Sydney and uh, failed each time. Yeah. So always, always, always a challenge. But it's interesting that the Stanhopia that's, that I mentioned just flowered has a very strong vanilla scent. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so that vanilla smell travels through to different genus as well. Yeah, yeah obviously it's, uh, it's an enzyme or something within the plant that... Uh, that emanates through the flower, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant, actually. Yeah. Well, mate, look, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we're looking forward to working with you and all the team from Love the Garden over the next few weeks as we continue the Garden Gurus Live. Um, and, and look, thanks so much for your time, Greg. It's great always to catch up with you. Yep. Good to speak to you again, Trevor, and speak again soon. This show is brought to you by the Garden Gurus and Evergreen Garden Care. Evergreen Garden Care and their market-leading brands are some of the most trusted consumer brands within the garden care market. They produce high-quality garden care products designed to help people create their own green oasis. Whether it's a garden, a balcony or potted indoor plants, they want to inspire anyone, anywhere to be able to easily create and maintain their own garden. To find out more about Evergreen Garden Care, head to www.lovethegarden.com. Okay, well, that was a fantastic interview from Greg. He's a very fascinating guy. His knowledge is amazing and it's an opportunity for us occasionally when we get hold of him to be able to share some of that with you. So I hope you enjoyed it. Very grateful to Love the Garden for allowing us this opportunity. Now, as we move through this show, it is really all about you. And I want you to do me a favour. Could you please do me a favour right now and click like. And look, I'll answer your questions because they're coming through thick and fast. So throw them at us now and we'll get through as many as we can before we finish the show. But make sure you like it. Now, look, there are some really good questions coming from all over the country. And I'm going to start off, I'll start off here in Perth with Zane in Alexander Heights. Hi, Zane. Could you please tell me what could be eating my bird of paradise and what I could apply to stop it? Now, this is a good thing. Um, Zane, you've told us where you're from, and which is great. And uh, sometimes sending us a photograph is also something else you can do. We can kind of have a look at it and give me a little bit 
of a better idea of what it could be. Because Bird of Paradise, the flower when it's fresh, is a little susceptible to aphids. But if you're getting big chunks eaten out of it, it could be every, anything from the leaf cutter bee through to a grub. And it's a bit hard for me to take that guess just at the moment. What I would suggest you do is grab a torch, go out at night and then shine it over the flowers. Because most often, you'll see the damage being done in the evening. So that might help you a little bit. Check it out, but if not, send me a photo and I'll help you out with it, I promise you. Uh, let's have a look and see how we're going. Laurie, I'm not sure where you're from, Laurie. What happens to the stalk after a ponytail has flowered? Mine flowered 18 months ago and the dry stalk is still there. Break the stalk off. It's just gonna encourage it to grow further. Don't worry about it. It's finished, the seed's fallen on the ground or you've collected it. The ponytail's flower um, is only there to produce the seed and once the seed's finished, you can take that flower stalk away. Natalie's in Sydney. Hi, Natalie. Can I grow a uh, banana tree, a ladyfinger in a pot? Should it be in the ground? Currently, I have it in a pot at the moment. Okay, so it'd have to be a really big pot. Thing to know about bananas is, number one, they are the world's biggest herb. They're actually a herb. They grow out of the ground. There's no woody stem in, in a, in a um, banana. Uh, so that's the first thing you should keep in mind. The second thing is they're the only plant that actually travels. So where you plant it here, what'll happen is that's, that stem will grow up out of the ground once all the roots have all developed and it'll produce a crop. Once you've harvested your bananas off, that stem has to cut off. And what'll happen is you'll get two or maybe four shoots grow around the outside. And then when they've produced, you'll cut that and it'll keep going. And suddenly your banana has moved a metre or two metres. And the answer to your question probably lies in that, that because they do tend to run over the years, um, staying in a pot for too long is probably not a great idea. Albeit, my mate Nev Passmore, um, his partner Delia has a beautiful hydroponic nursery and they are growing a whole bunch of different bananas, including the red daca, which is another one of those unusual forms. And um, they grow them in big tubs in an aquaponics environment and still manage to keep them all in the tubs. And they've been there for a good 10 or, gee whiz, 15 years, I would think. So probably a couple of answers there, but you're going to need a big tub if you're going to grow it, um, that's for sure. You're not telling us where you're from. You need to do that. And don't forget to like us. It's really important. Debbie, I'm not sure where you're from, but you've never used Epsom salts on your plants and you've read conflicting reviews. Do I recommend them uh, in use in moderation on citrus, roses and ferns? Okay. So Epsom salts is magnesium sulfate. Magnesium is a greening agent. So if you've got um, a bit of a like a light green tinge to the leaves of your plants. They're not dark green and lush and healthy. Could be that you've got an Epsom salt or a magnesium sulfate deficiency or magnesium deficiency. Now, um, my recommendation is that you do apply it. If you're in sandy soils or if you're in soils that are depleted of nutrients, every once in a while, if your leaves are looking green, giving, giving them a dose with some Epsom salts mixed into a watering can, watered into the foliage and also the ground around the base will really do a, a wonderful job for them. Um, so citrus, yes. Roses, yes. Gardenias, um, azaleas, rhododendrons, but not ferns, okay? So the ferns will not like it too much. They require a lot softer fertiliser. So with ferns, try to go towards things like an organic plant food. You could use um, Charlie Carp. The one that I love the most is, without doubt, Power Feed. So just um, 
yeah, just give, give the ferns that. But the rest of them, one shot of magnesium sulfate, Epsom salts right now will do them the world of good. And if you're wondering how much, well, probably two to four big heaps tablespoons in a nine litre watering can, water it with the rose on the end of the watering can, water it over the foliage and around the base. That'll do the job. Joy's in Northern Victoria. Hello, Joy. Thanks for joining us. What do I need to give my hydrangeas to get them flowering better? Well, there's a few hydrangea varieties that do flower pretty much through most of the year now. Um, and uh, you will get a great benefit from feeding them. What you should do, Joy, is just get a pH test done on your soil. That means take some soil into your local garden centre, ask them if they'll run a pH test over the top of it. It's a very simple thing. If your soil is neutral, you can use a general all-round fertiliser. But if your soil is alkaline, your hydrangeas are likely to be pink. If your soil is acidic, they're likely to be blue. And you might like to change the, the colour. And you can do that uh, through either using lime, garden lime, or alternatively an acidic-based um, fertiliser. So um, you can get a specialised hyd hydrangea bluing tonic. So that's, um, that's the option. I'd get into my local garden centre, take a soil sample, and that'll help to get them to flower better. Leonie is in Adelaide. Hello, Leonie. We haven't had too many questions out of South Australia today. Previously, you've suggested that you, you remove the first year flowers from your frangipani cuttings just to help with the growth for next year. Should you take them off before they open? Absolutely. You should definitely do that because the energy that's going into them and then later on producing fruit, which is going to have seed in it, um, it's energy that would have gone into producing foliage. So you want to get as much foliage as you can. So pick those flower buds off. It's a lot better way to go. And this kind of applies to, to fruit and all sorts of things. So I hope that that helps. Okay, let's have a look and see how we're going there. Remember, keep liking our page. I can see the likes coming through. I'm looking at it and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Liz is in the Central Coast. Hello, Liz. Just a general question. Does a plant being healthy protect them from insects. Absolutely, Liz, it's a bit like us. If we don't have a good diet, if we're, if we're not getting the right nutrition, the problem that we might have is we start to develop deficiencies in certain things. And when we're, we're deficient in certain things and in a plant, that can mean that your cell wall, so the outer structure of the bark, is soft, it's not hard the way it should be naturally. And that means, say, for example, in roses, aphids can drill their way in and suck out the goodness. Well, they don't really do that, by the way. Aphids stick their proboscis into the tissue, they push it in, and then they grab on with their front legs and they hang on for dear life because the turgid pressure, that is the like our blood pressure, like when we cut ourselves, the blood pumps out, and when we cut a, pl a plant, the sap oozes out. Well, that's the pressure uh, of the movement of it going up and down the stem. Well, they just hang on and that's just pushed into their body. It's amazing how it works. And that's why you'll see so many of them just hanging on for dear life around rosebuds when they're growing, because that tends to be where all the softness is in the tissue. That's why you get so many of them in around that space. So the answer is yes, that's why you need an all-round fertiliser. And that what I mean by an all-round fertiliser is one with a very high intensity of those micro and macronutrients. I can't stress it enough. It's really important to have a look on the back of the packet before you go feeding. If it only gives you a list of three or four or five or six different key nutrients, the three main ones and maybe two or three others, it's not good enough. You want to have a really good trace element um, register sitting on that, on that label. Important 
important lesson and it's a good one to share with everybody. We're going to go to Victoria. Hello, Jill. Is it okay to net my veggie garden or will it stop pollination? Well, birds don't pollinate um, your veggies or your fruit. Um, of course, it's insects that do that and they should be able to get through netting. So that shouldn't be an issue. So I wouldn't worry about it. Con, well, I'm not sure whether it's our con or another con, but g'day con, how do I grow a fig tree from a cutting? You've tried it two times and nothing. Right, well, now is the time to do it. So what I would do is I would go take the cutting, um, literally take it off, cut all the leaves off except for the top two leaves, and then I'd lay it on the ground in a shaded spot, and I'd leave it there for 24 hours. The cutting probably needs to be about that long. And then I would take a single cutting and I would put it into a 100 to 140 mil pot, about that deep with cutting mixture in it, and I would keep the water up to it over the next two months or three months and you will get roots come out the bottom of that, I promise you. If you really want to absolutely guarantee it, you can stick it in rooting powder because if you stick it in rooting powder, you always get the roots come out the bottom. It works really well and that's where you want them to come out too. Jill is in the Gold Coast. Hello, Jill. My six-year-old maiden hair has aphids. Is soapy water okay to use? Absolutely not, Jill. Don't do it. It'll be a big mistake. What you want to do is use, if you want to get rid of them, the simple way to do it is actually get the hose out and gently wash them away because in a maiden hair, bless you, in a maiden hair, um, the tissue's quite sensitive, but soapy water will burn all the foliage off and all the new growth. So keep that in mind. Um, yeah, that's, it's not a common thing and they'll probably be on all the new growth. So a little bit of washing would be the way to go or you really need to, there are a couple of really soft, gentle sprays that you can get in a trigger pack from your local garden centre. Svetlana from Perth. Hello, Svetlana. Uh, great to see you again. I'd like to know what is the best, best month to divide and transplant a mature kangaroo paw. Actually, believe it or not, right now is a good time to do it. Another month, another two months, even better, but you can do it this time of the year. Um, the, the heat in Perth, Sam can be a setback sometimes, but you know in March, as we move into milder conditions, you can do it. So folks, if you haven't thought of this before, kangaroo paws can be split up. So you can literally, once the flowering is finished, you go through, cut all the flowers off. In fact, you can cut the foliage off just above ground level, and then you split them up and you literally move them into some other areas. And um, this is the way to do it. I hope that helps. Uh, let's go to Shell Harbour. Hello, Kerry. How are you? You've got a hydrangea, Miss Sayora. It's looking quite poor, not flowering yet, and it's had a reasonable amount of new leaves at the moment. Um, what do you suggest? Okay, so the Japanese um, did so much breeding with hydrangeas the last sort of 15 years. They've got some amazing varieties, absolutely beautiful varieties, and they're well worthwhile keeping your eye out for. Um, the thing with hydrangeas is you've kind of got to look at them as a three-year before you start to get really good results from them, so three years down the line. Um, if you've got it in the ground, which I'm hoping you do, um, it'll be slowly trying to establish its root system. So mulching is really important and that'll encourage the leaf growth. But next year, as you move into sort of spring, just before it starts growing back, cut back down to the double bud. So as your stem comes up and you've got like a leaf a leaf axis here, um, the leaves will have dropped off, but you'll see little buds starting to emerge. At that point, 
go and throw a bucket of ice around the base of the plant. That'll help trigger some really good flowering and then just give it a bit of a feed. But the trick is don't go feeding them too much. So you feed them right at that point, just as they started to grow out, and then let them do their own thing. After that, you'll end up with beautiful flowers. Um, I'm not sure you're gonna get them now. You really wanna worry about um, getting, you know, encouraging it, I suppose, to, to produce lots and lots of foliage and a nice structure. Uh, let's go, how are we going here? Lynette, we've got one more question. She's been growing a vanilla for eight years in Les Murdy. I am thinking this is a vanilla orchid, which would be pretty impressive. Les Murdy is actually where I live. Good news, Lynette, you made my day. And you're in the second year of getting beans and you've got 34 beans this year. It's located in the patio area in a plastic greenhouse, which is generally quite dry. And I reckon that's one of my mistakes. Mine are a little bit too humid. That is amazing, Lynette. That's incredible news. So. I suppose the, the key here is making sure that they have moisture, but more of a dry condition. And just so you know, the, the vanilla orchid is a climbing orchid, folks. So this is one that will climb up and end up sort of covering over the rafters. And 34 beans, it's one of the most expensive things that you can buy. So fresh vanilla beans, how cool is that? Thank you for that contribution. What a great night. Thank you for joining us. It's, um, well, where are we? We're just, just past eight o'clock on the East Coast and 5.14 here. Uh, as they love to say around here at this time of the day, it's almost beer o'clock. So it's time for us all to pack up and head home, maybe have a meal. Um, I'm hoping you're going to enjoy your evening if you're on the East Coast or in another place. Thanks so much for joining us. We will be back this time next week. Remember, tell us what you think about this time, if it's worked well for you, if you liked the stories, the questions, the guests, Give us as much feedback as you can. We're trying to make this, uh, you know, what you want. That's really what we're setting out to do. Now, we did have those five packets of Mr. Fothergill's seeds. And the winners are Sandra in Brisbane, James in WA, Deborah in Victoria, Luba in Perth, Francis in Victoria. Congratulations to all of you. They were great questions. And uh, if you could do us a favour, if you could uh, message us, with uh, your name address, that would be fantastic. And I'm sure that Michaela will have those seeds off to you before you know it. Now, the Garden Gurus Autumn Series will be on Channel 9. It starts on the 20th of February. We're very excited about coming back for our 40th season. It's hard to believe, 40, crazy. Mm. Yeah, Michaela's like, just can't believe it, but it's true. 40th season, can you believe it? Over 750 episodes since we first started and thousands and thousands of stories and we haven't lost our passion. In fact, it just gets more so every year. So we're looking forward to sharing that with you. But remember, if you want any information ever, all you have to do is jump on our website. It's thegardengurus.tv. You can catch up on previous stories. Or if you just want to watch some, some of the shows, just jump on our YouTube channel. It's The Garden Gurus TV. Um, you can listen back to today's session too. So if there's something you missed or something you'd like to check, just listen back. You can listen to it uh, on the live stream via Spotify, via Apple Podcasts and also Podbean. And we'll look forward to seeing you next Friday at 7pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Happy gardening. I'm Trevor Cochran. We'll see you then. Take care. Have a nice weekend. The Garden Gurus is back on your screens this weekend. Tune into 9 and 9HD this Saturday at 4.30pm across all states. And if you'd like to catch up on the previous episode, tune into 9 Life this Saturday at 5pm. When in doubt, 
Make sure you check your local TV guide. Oh, I got my rig and I'm ready to go.